chapter 5, but it's the same author. It's the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a church. He's writing to believers, and so that much remains true. So we are going, and we're going to get back to the First Thessalonians, but today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. You can follow on the screen, or if you, can, if you want to look into your own Bibles, you can. Verse 1 starts off, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal heaven, not built by human hands. Paul starts off with an analogy, a comparison of a tent. And of course we realize and we understand that he's talking about the body. But this is actually a perfect illustration for the Apostle Paul because he was a tent maker by trade. So he would have personally and greatly understood this analogy, this comparison. And so would the Corinthians that he was writing to. They had seen the people that were roaming. They're nomadic, right? They roam. They don't have a permanent place to lay their head. So they would understand that as well. And so then he makes a comparison. He says, well, you have a tent, but you also have a building. Now, they couldn't be any more different. Other than they're the same in this. You can enter it. You can enter a tent, enter a building, and you can stay there for a period of time. If it's a tent, I wouldn't recommend staying very long. I'm not a big tent fan. In fact, uh, we did tent camping as a kid when I, in, in, in my family. I can remember one specific time. We got about four or five hours away, and uh, my mom says, uh, Hun, did you remember the tent? Well, you know the answer to that one. Didn't remember the tent, and that's how that one went. I, in fact, I actually do have some pretty good memories, but I, I absolutely despise sleeping in tents. It's not something that I enjoy, and I haven't done it since I was a kid. The, the tents, and I'm not judging you if you do, and that's awesome, but I can't imagine just sleeping on the floor. I mean, my back, I'm getting old, right? And, and, and they're flimsy. Have you ever been in a tent in a storm? Ah. I mean, just all over, and it leaks. Don't tell me it doesn't. I know there's tents that say that they don't leak, but if you touch that side, it is going to rain on you inside. You're going to get wet. It's not comfortable. It's not protective of storms. It's not protective of... You can't lock the zipper and go, okay, we're safe for the night. <laughs> it's just not going to work. I can go home and I can lock my door. I can go in a building and lock the door and I'm safe. You're not protected from that. You're not protected for the elements. In fact, what we find out is a tent is just simply temporary. It's just temporary exactly like our life. Our life is temporary. And if you are here this morning and you say, yeah, I, I believe in God... I have a personal relationship with God, then you no doubt recognize the frailty of life. You recognize this idea that this life, this isn't our final stop. We recognize we are kind of like those nomads. We are really pilgrims just passing through on our journey. And our journey, our destination is the eternity with our Father in heaven. The destination, of course, is so much better than our current location. And so we long for it. We desire for it. We desire to be with our Heavenly Father. We desire something better to be with our God for eternity. But here's the reality. Reality is you and I live in the here and now. This is reality. The wanting to be with our Father in Heaven and wanting to have glorified bodies, wanting to have eternity with our Savior, that is in the future. And so what do we do in response to that? We groan. Look at verses 2 through 4. Meanwhile, we groan. I have to do that when I say the word groan for some reason. We groan, right? We're longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and we are 
burdens. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 4. It's repeated. We groan. Look, this term, groan, is used in six different verses. And in three of those verses in the New Testament, it, the groaning is in direct response to our earthly bodies and desiring something more. It literally means to sigh. <sighs> Ever done that? We all have, right? In response to a lot of different things. But maybe you just go, oh. maybe that's what you do in the morning. You wake up and, oh, I don't know if I can do it today. I don't know if I can have another day like yesterday. And maybe it's because, maybe you feel like you don't have a purpose. Perhaps you feel like you don't have a direction. You know, this idea of uh, sighing and, and uh, that has an idea of being burdened and weighed down. So maybe, perhaps you're being weighed down by the pressures that are on us with life. But we feel the desire to be with our Savior and to be in eternity and to be in glorified bodies that we tend to forget the importance of this thing that we're doing here, this thing called life. And so verse 4 continues, We groan in our burden to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See, we do desire to be with Him for eternity. And we find out as we just peek into verse 5 that that's what God wants for us as well. God wants us to be with Him for eternity. He, he created us for a purpose, and that purpose was to display His glory, and ultimately He wants to be with you and me forever in eternity. He has created it, so His desire is to do that. And it says that He created us for this purpose. And so you can peek back to verse 4. The purpose is this, that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This term actually sounds pretty familiar. Paul wrote it already in his first letter to the Corinthians. Death is swallowed up in victory, he says. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, what Paul does here is he reverses the imagery that has been commonly known by people. John MacArthur, in his study Bible, writes this. By our participation in the resurrection life of Jesus, our mortal being, our life, our bodies, is swallowed up by life, not by death. MacArthur says, Paul reverses the age-old imagery of death being the thing that swallows life up. The Bible speaks about death being the, the thing that swallows life up in Proverbs and in Psalms and Isaiah. And so Paul knew his audience. He knew that they would get this. He would under, they would understand it. And so just as he mentions from 1 Corinthians 15 that death has been swallowed up in victory, now this life that you and I have, which before Christ was once marred by death, now has been defeated. It has been defeated and has given us the opportunity to have an eternal life and relationship with Him. That is what He purposed. And that, in fact, is what Christ accomplished. How do we know? How do we know that we can count on what Christ accomplished? Well, because when Christ left this earth, what did He do? He promised. He made a promise to send a helper. Didn't he? he made a promise to his disciples that, look, I know I'm leaving. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you a helper. The Holy Spirit. And not just a helper. In fact, we see in the scripture, it is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Look at verse 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose, which we just talked about, and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You see, Jesus conquered sin and he conquered death. And as if that wasn't enough, what he does next is he says, one day I will return and I will take you to that place that you so desire. 
I promise you, I, I, I make a pledge or a deposit. This term is used four times in the New Testament. It is always used as a guarantee of our inheritance in our future home. If you've ever purchased a home, you know that it takes a deposit. You have to put a down payment, a deposit, guaranteeing that I'm going to buy this house. And it's normally a significant amount of money that you would not walk away from, right? This is what God did. See, God gave us His Son. He gave us His Son for our sins, to be the ultimate sacrifice. And then what He does is He continues to back up His claims of deity by the resurrection of Christ, which, by the way, was seen by hundreds. His disciples song on the mountain, and He left them with a promise, and that promise was first, I will be back. But just in case you don't believe me, in case you have any doubts, I'm going to leave you a deposit, a pledge, a guarantee, and that's the Holy Spirit. And if you've ever read the book of Acts, boy, did he send the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, which is the birth of the church. He sends the Holy Spirit, and the, the church is born. The church begins. Thousands of people are saved. People are changing their life. The gospel spreads, and it cannot be stopped. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the deposit. That's the guarantee. In fact, in modern Greek, this term pledge is actually what is used for an engagement ring. God has made us a promise. And He will come back. And He's given us His pledge and His promise, His down payment, His guarantee in the Holy Spirit. So look, I get it. We want a better place. We get frustrated with life. We get frustrated with this tent that gets all frumpy and big and weird in various places, right? It just lets us down. It lets us down, doesn't it? You want to be, I know, if you're a believer, you want to be with your Creator for eternity. And by the way, that's what He wants for you too. And so if you know Christ as your personal Savior, it will happen. It's a guarantee. But not yet. Not yet. See, this passage first part of this passage is actually normally preached at funerals. But they stop. They stop at, the, be- at the, the beginning of this passage. And they don't continue the complete thought that goes throughout this passage. See, we understand the desire for the heavenly realm. We understand for something more. But the theme here is not death. The theme is life. The theme is living, and not just living, but living with a purpose and living intentionally. So look, we understand our desires. We understand our desire to be somewhere else. Our desire is to be in heaven. And our desire to be with Him. To have bodies that don't break down. We want more than what we see. We want paradise. But not quite yet. It's in the future. So that begs the question. If not yet, what now? What do I do? How should I live? We find the answers in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Skip verse 7. We're coming back to it. Look at verse 8. We are confident. The mood has changed, right? The Apostle Paul made sure that the mood has changed. It went from being having a negative overtone to a positive one. I mean, look at verse 2 and 4. We groan. We sigh. Uh, uh. Verse 6, verse 8. We are confident. Confident just means that we're of good cheer, that we're bold. If you've ever went, does that exude confidence? It doesn't, right? 
It's a sign of frustration. That's what it is. Perhaps it's a sign of sadness. Perhaps it's a sign of defeat. Do you feel like sometimes in your life you feel defeated? Life is just like, it's too, it's too much. Even if you claim to be a Christian and a child of God, don't you sometimes feel defeated? Or maybe we act as if we are defeated? I wonder why. Why sometimes do we live as if we've got nothing to live for? You know, it's believers, Christians, that walk around like they just lost their best friend and makes the world go, wait a second, I don't quite get that. Not saying that there is a disappointment and we don't react to that. Don't misunderstand me. But as your common state, if you just always, oh, and everything's just always so negative. Look, the world looks at that and goes, wait, that doesn't make sense. Because you say you have it. Yet you live as if you have nothing. So if we have it, and it, by the way, is eternal security in Christ. then shouldn't we live as if we do? Shouldn't we, you heard this one, right? Turn that frown upside down. Make lemonade out of lemons. Or perhaps you should start using the 14 muscles it takes to smile instead of the 72 muscles it takes to frown. We should be living a life of excitement. Again, not that that, that things don't happen. I know life is hard. Things happen and you can't control it. And it affects your, your, your countenance. But overall, are you living a defeated life? We should be living a life of excitement. My dad has always told me, and I've, I've portrayed this to you. I'm going to portray this to my kid and I'm going to, my kids, and I'm going, to, I'm going to say it until the day I die. It's this. There is no more exciting life in the Christian life. There just isn't. We follow a, a, a God that is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's got everything in control. There's no more rewarding life than the life that is dedicated to Christ. But I also understand that there's probably no more challenging life than one that is dedicated to God. But look, look at how the early church operated. When they received the Holy Spirit, when the the, the church was born, they they were spreading the gospel. And how did they act? They were excited. They were generous. They were giving of their time. They were giving of their things. And they lived with confidence. They lived with confidence in a time when they could lose their life for what they believed in. They lived with the end in mind. With an eternal perspective. Shouldn't we? So look, we, we know, we understand. We desire something more. But not quite yet. It's not yet. So how should we live? First, we should live confidently. The next is in verse 7. A very short, yet very rich verse. We live by faith, not by sight. This is actually from the NIV. Um, I use the New American Standard uh, Bible when, I, uh, when I'm studying, and I actually like that translation a little better. It says, we walk by faith, not by sight. If you've been here for any of the sermons in 1 Thessalonians, you'll know we can't escape this term, walk, right? There's this term, walk, which is a continuum, gradual, yet unspectacular movement forward in life. So how should we walk? How should we go through life? We should go through life by faith. Isn't that really the motto of a Christian? Isn't that, if you will, the, the creed of Christianity is that we walk by faith and not by sight? At least that's what we say. It's what we claim. But I wonder, do we always, do we always back it up? 
Do we, do we back it up? Maybe, maybe the scripture should say, well, I know I'm supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. Or perhaps it should say, well, I try. Well, I know I try more than that person. They're the ones that don't walk by faith. We talk a pretty good walk. And everything is great when life is going well, right? You may be in a season in your life where you're like, man, God is blessing Man, I have so many things to be thankful for, and we always do, by the way. But you may just be in an, in an incredible season in your life where, like, man, there's just not a lot of things going on in my life that's stressing me out. Man, I just, I, I feel good. And you know what I say? That's awesome. Enjoy it. Because something inevitably will happen, and I'm not trying to be a downer on life. I just know the cycles. You are going to go through some good times, and you're going to go through some rough times, maybe even rougher times, and maybe some good times. You're going to be all over the map, not knowing what to do. But what happens when the rubber meets the road? When we find out that life is throwing us some lemons, right? And things are hard. What happens? Are we really living by faith? Or are we living by sight? Now here's what you need to understand. Of course, you realize, right, that faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. Does that make sense? Faith is only as good as the object in which faith is placed. You know, people have said throughout the ages, and you've probably had it said to you during a hard time, just keep the faith. Just keep the faith. Everything's going to be okay. Or have faith. It will work out. Everything always works out. It's false. It doesn't always just work out. Faith, unless there is an object to that faith, then faith is simply a neutral term. We say, yeah, I'll just, I'm going to have faith. But see, what we understand as believers... As the body, as the church, we understand our faith is in our Creator, our Father, in our Almighty God. And what He wants from us is to live a life of faith. And guess what that requires? That requires making decisions when you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. When God is leading you somewhere, you're like, man, I don't know. What He wants is you to make that decision and follow Him, even though you may not know what to do. Faith requires you to hand over the controls. That's hard to do. If you're anything like me, if I'm in a car, I'd r- much rather be driving. I just, it's, I, I want to be in control. Unfortunately, I find that true in my own life. I want to be in control, but faith requires us to go, you know what? I'm going to let God handle it. Faith requires you, and this is a big one, to say yes, no matter what the question may be. God, I don't know what the question is going to be, but I know the answer is going to be yes. It's a tough one. Faith requires us to say, you know what, God, I probably would have done things a little bit differently, but you're in charge. I know you got this. And you wonder, can you really live by faith? Can it really happen? Can you be successful in living by faith? Can it happen? Well, here's what one of the commentators say. The possibility of the walk by faith has been proved by the example of the great and the good who have gone before us, specifically Hebrews chapter 11. If you've ever read the great faith chapter, you realize that it is possible to live by faith, not in your own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is going to give you the ability to do it. And as we see in the great hall of faith, look, it didn't always turn out the way that they would have liked. But they were still included in what faith really is. And so, can it be done? Yes. You see the examples in the Bible, and you no doubt have people in your own life that you look to and you're like, man, they they live a powerful life of faith. You see examples. It is 
possible. So what we find is this. All this around us, sometimes it gets old. Sometimes it just gets old. And you want to have something different. Something better. You long for eternity. But not yet. So how should we be living? We should be living confidently. We should also live by faith. Then verse 9 kind of brings it all together. So we make it our goal to please Him. Whether we are at home, in the body, or away from it. Look, we understand what we want. We know our weaknesses, and we groan, and we sigh over life. But is it because we've lost the goal? Is it because we've lost the thing that we are aiming for in life? Perhaps you get up day after day, and you join the rat race, and the questions come to your mind. Well, what am I doing? Am I just trying to get as much money as I can? Am I trying to get people to notice me? Am I trying to get a lot of possessions? Which, by the way, all those things are okay if they're not the goal. Just that, that it's not the ends. You know, if you've never thought about what the goal in life is, what the bullseye is, you'll never hit it. Because you don't know what you're aiming for. Paul says we make it our goal to please him. A goal is simply an ambition. It's something you strive for. It's literally taking aim. How many of you ever shot bow and arrow in here? How many of you shot bow and arrow? Very good. Uh, the only time I've ever done is at summer camp. And that was embarrassing. Because uh, I was supposed to be teaching, teaching the class. Um, but anyway, your, your goal is to hit the target, right? Not really. If, if you're really aiming, what are you aiming for? Bullseye. The teacher should be able to hit the bullseye. The teacher couldn't hit the target. What? Some of you shoot guns. Anybody go shoot guns, shoot clay pigeons, things like that? Yeah. The goal is to shoot what you're aiming for. Uh, maybe there's more of you that have thrown darts. Anybody throwing darts? Nobody throwing, come on, nobody throws darts in here? Ah, oh, there he goes. Jeez. Am I the only one that likes darts? Look, if you are aiming for something, you're playing darts, you're aiming for the bullseye unless you're playing a different game in that. But you are normally aiming for the bullseye. And what do you do? Whether it's archery or shooting or darts or whatever it may be. And even in life, what do you do when you're trying to hit the bullseye? You concentrate. You literally block out everything that is around you. You block out the negative thoughts. The distractions. Perhaps there's pain that is causing this. You, you, you block out things and you focus. I don't know about you, but I lose focus easily. Just do and not just the fact that I can only sit for like 15 or 20 minutes and then i got to get up and do something different. Not just that. It's in life. I feel like there's days when I'm like, man, I'm going at it. I'm living confidently. I'm living by faith. I'm living to please God. And then something happens. And the next day I'm like, oh, what? I'm confused. And I, and I get sad and I get depressed and I get confused. Because why? I've lost the bullseye. We lose focus. We lose focus on what we're chasing after. What is it that you're chasing after in life? What is it that... You're chasing after every day. Are, 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 you, are you trying to please others around you? Are you trying to please your boss? Are you trying to please your mate, your husband, or your wife? Are you trying to please your children? Or are you trying to please God? You may say, well, all those sound good. Yeah, it does. But if you are pleasing God, you will be pleasing to others. You will be pleasing to your boss. You will be pleasing to your mate and pleasing to your children. Listen to this. Your actions towards other people start with your actions towards him. Did you get that? 
Your actions towards other people start with your actions towards him. We should be living to please him. Look, we long for something different. We all have felt the size, right? We all have experienced a longing for something different, something better. But again, not yet. So how should we live? Confidently? Live by faith? Live to please him. But if you're like me and my children, when you ask them to do something, what do you get? Why? Why should I do it? We're no different, right? Okay, that sounds good. I should, I should live confident. I should live by faith. I should live to please him. That's cool. Give me a reason. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or whether bad. Listen to one commentator. He says that this involves not merely an appearance in the court of heaven, but the divine illumination of what has been hidden by darkness and the divine exposure of secret aims and motives. That means that the light, is, so to speak, is going to be turned on to what we do and how we do it. God is able to look to our motives. Isn't that a motivating factor for us? Knowing that one day we will give an account of the things that we do. Look, I may be able to fool you. You may be able to fool me. You can't see through to my intentions. You see my actions. We can't fool God. He is able to see through to that. See through the intentions and the motives. And really, what he's getting at is the character of who you are. But here's what you need to know. Do not be deceived in this. There should be no fear of this judgment. Listen to this. The appearance. This is from uh, uh, Gabelon in his commentary. He says, The appearance before Christ's tribunal is the privilege of Christians. It is a privilege to stand before God. It is concerned with the assessment of the works and indirectly of your character. Not with determination of destiny, but with reward, not status. Judgment on the basis of works is not opposed to justification on the basis of faith. Look, it indeed is a privilege to stand before God. But know this. Believer, you who have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, when you stand before him at that point, it has nothing to do with your eternal security. That is eternally wrapped up and held tighter than you can possibly imagine. It is whether or not you and I have lived the way we should have. It comes down to, did I live confidently through my life? Did I live by faith? Did I walk by faith through my life? Did I live to please him? Was that my goal? You know, when I get an opportunity to speak on this concept, this idea of an eternal perspective, I always think of those who have made an impact on my life in this area. Those who have been an example of how to live with an eternal perspective, the end in mind. There are three people that come to mind, two who have reached their final one is my buddy Phil, who I spoke about a few weeks ago. Live with an eternal perspective. Another is a person that you no doubt probably knew. That was Mr. Gary Berger. The third, my dad. I think of how blessed I have been to have seen people who have lived with an eternal perspective, not perfectly, 
Not, don't get that wrong. Not perfectly. But they live with an eternal perspective. And I pray that I continue to have people like that in my life. Because people like that, people that can live with the end in mind, no matter what is happening in their life, they live with such confidence that inspires you to live with confidence. They live with such faith that causes you to want to be a better person in what you do. And they live to please God so much that it causes you to evaluate your life and whether or not that's how you are living. Look, what makes these men special is not who they are, but is in the God that they serve and the eternal perspective that it brings in serving our God. So I ask you, how are we living? Are we living with an eternal perspective? I want to give you one final visual. I have a rope here. Ironically enough, these are the ropes that we use to set up the chairs. You've never seen this process, and I hope you never will. It's a sight. But as you can see, this rope goes all the way. See? See what happens? All right. I'll stop there. Imagine, if you will, this rope is an eternal rope. Just know that it ends in the kitchen. But for now, it's an eternal rope, okay? So you have this. This is our life now. This little three-inch area. The rest, all the way through the kitchen and beyond. Follow me with that one, okay? It's eternity. We get so caught up in what happens in this little tight area that we forget what happens here directly affects what happens here. It just does. We get so caught up and we say, you know what? For this amount, no, no, this amount of time, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna work hard so that I can enjoy this amount of time over here. You understand how ridiculous that is? It doesn't make sense, but we do it. We lose sight of what all this is, and this is eternity. Look, I understand we have to live in the here and now, but we need to live with eternal perspective. We've got to understand what happens here directly affects what happens here. And so I ask you, are you living with an eternal perspective? I'll close with this. This is your challenge. This is it. This is your takeaway. We understand that we want something so much more than we have. And if we're believers, it's a guarantee, but it's not quite yet. So what should we do? We need to live confidently, live by faith, and live to please God. Why? Because we will one day stand before Him and give an account. The challenge today is when you walk out these doors and you hit the rat race again tomorrow morning and you start racing people to work and trying to figure out what's going on in life, Live with an eternal perspective. It will change you. I promise that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your, your, your love in our life. But thank you so much for what you do, how you provide. Thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you so much for your word. It gives us direction when we just seem like we're clueless, when we don't know where to go, or we get confused and disappointed by life. 
Lord, we all want something more. We're not satisfied with the status quo, Lord. And if we are a believer, we know what we have to look forward to. It's a guarantee. But there's some things that have to happen before we get there. Lord, that is, we live with character. We live with an eternal perspective. We live confidently with faith, Lord. We live simply to please you. That's got to be our bullseye, our goal. Lord, help us to understand that what happens in this life affects our eternity. Lord, we are so grateful that you give us the opportunity for salvation. Lord, we're grateful that all we need to do is respond to you and say, yes, I believe in your son. I believe in who he is and who he was. I believe that he defeated sin and death, that he died for my sins. I put my faith and my trust in that. I want to live a life to please him. Lord, that's, that's all it is. It's a belief. It's a faith. And that can happen anywhere at any time. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that you will impress that upon them. Lord, I pray that you will help us to live with an eternal perspective. We thank you so much for your love and for who you are. And we pray your guidance on this journey called life. We ask this in your name. Amen. I'm gonna